Hello, friends. Welcome. So excited to have you joining me today. My guest is Olivia Campbell, who has written such an interesting book called Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World of Medicine. And this book marries the fascination with Victorian-era medicine, with history, with women's rights, with the history of education. It's just so, so interesting. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I am very excited to be speaking with Olivia Campbell today. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I read your book, Women in White Coats, how the first women doctors changed the world of medicine. And this is a topic that I just think is so interesting. First of all, we love this concept of people who are first. We love people who defy the odds. And that is what these women were. They were out there defying the odds. And of course, the history of medicine is kind of morbidly fascinating. Plus, you know, the history nerd in me just loves reading stories like this. So this is just the perfect marrying of so many different interests. And I would imagine it is for you too. I love this book. I really had a great time writing it. I try not to be too gross. I don't think it's too gross. It's not gross. (laughs) You know, I wanted to get some of the real science and what it was like to visit a doctor, to go see a doctor during this time period. And that was really important to me to enter the world of medicine, the history of medicine through the eyes of these women. That's what I thought was a great entry point for me is we see through the different eras of these women, there's one woman who's older than the other two. And her era of medicine is kind of the old stuffy dark ages. They're still using leeches. They're still using (laughs) some bloodletting and some humoral medicine things are going on. But as the, the younger two women come along, we see the new era of medicine coming, this antisepsis, white surgical <laughs> things and, and clean. Everything is suddenly clean, right? It's not filthy anymore. When you have anesthesia, then you can actually do surgeries. The person isn't awake. And so it becomes a much more of a science. And I love using these women to see that progression of this incredible era in the history of medicine and its advances that are being made. It's uh, such rapid advances, but advocating for women in any profession is always uh, my jam. And uh, just being able to look at the history of what these women had to go through to become the first, it was shocking. It's infuriating, but it's also ultimately very inspiring. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So set the stage for people who are not already interested in the history of medicine or the history of women in medicine. And I know they will be after they read your book, but set the stage for us. What time period are we talking about? Are we talking about like 1640s Jamestown? Are we talking about the Civil War? Like, where are we in space and time here? So as I mentioned in the beginning of the book, women have always been caregivers, healthcare workers, nurses, of course. We find a few named women in history from Egypt who were definitely uh, doctors. But as the influence of the church grew through the Middle Ages, we have women lay healers being vilified as witches. So we're in a period in the book of Victorian era. It's the 1850s through 1870s, basically, is the, the era the book covers. And it's during this period where women are, are not expected to have a profession. They're not welcome in professions, they're not welcome in educational institutions, higher education was not expected, was not wanted. <laughs> so these women are fighting to have the right to go to college, to earn qualifications, to earn licensure, to be in medical societies, to have a profession. This is the time when women are expected to stay home, be passed from a father to a husband, have babies, uh, and that was about it. So we find that a lot of these women who were agitators were uh, lesbians because they weren't going to be having a husband. And so they wanted to be able to make money for themselves. They had to be able to support themselves and their families sometimes. So it's interesting just to see how many lesbians there are in the history of these movements for women to have more rights. Were they open about that? Or is it presumed based on veiled references in the historic documents? Or how do we know that about them? Most of them is kind of been confirmed by historians kind of thing. The woman that I feature heavily in the book, Sophia, she writes about kissing women in the pages that I found of her writing. And one of the other doctor's sisters, Emily, was known to be a lesbian. I feel like it wasn't as, I don't know if it wasn't as shocking at the time, or maybe like people just didn't think that's what was actually happening. Like they just thought these women were good friends and they lived together basically is what was happening. And there really wasn't like a stigma around it where there was for gay men at the time. So I think it was really almost like a society not really understanding what was happening. We've definitely confirmed for many of these that they were in fact living and having women partners. And you can see that phrase like a Boston marriage, you know, that happens like towards the end of the 19th century, which was referring to single adult women who lived together. And it was just like, yeah, that they lived together. And people who were in the know were like, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But other people who weren't in the know, they just accepted the explanation that they just lived together. Exactly. It was just like, yeah, that's, hey, if you're not married, a woman has to live with someone. Right. Right? Like the <laughs> subtext is women can't live alone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> women have to live with someone. Okay. so. First of all, what makes the women in this book even believe the idea that they could go to medical school? Because for millennia, 
women having a career, as you pointed out, was not socially acceptable. Women were regarded as less intelligent or they were regarded as unable to handle the weight of so many decisions. It would be detrimental to their health. Variety of reasons why women were never able to pursue careers outside of child rearing unless they were widowed and had to care for their children. What even makes these women have the audacity to be able to say, like, you better let me into this school? I think for the first Elizabeth Blackwell, I think she could have picked any profession. Like, I think she just wanted something. She wanted to make waves somehow as a woman. And I think really she was raised with the sense that why should she be any different than her brothers? Like why she was just as strong as them. She would wrestle them and she was educated as well as them. And she was like, well, why not? Like, I think it was because of the challenge, because people were saying no, that's really why she really wanted to do it. It's like, oh yeah, just watch me. That's the vibe I get from Elizabeth Blackwell. And then she applies and applies and applies all over the U.S. And no one's having her, of course. They're all rejecting her. And finally, she uh, applies to Geneva College in upstate New York. And the administrator is a friend of one of Elizabeth's mentors. And so he doesn't want to be the one to tell her no. He's like, oh, I can't, you know, I don't want to ruin this friendship. So he takes it to the student body and says, okay, we've had this woman apply to go to medical school here. And the students are sure that it's a joke, like that a nearby school is pranking them. There's no way this could actually be occurring. And so they're like, oh, yeah, sure. Let her come. That's fine. And so a few weeks later, here's an actual woman shows up at the school. So, (laughs) you know, they're shocked and eventually they get over it. And she has a few problems along the way, but she is ultimately accepted. She's kind of seen as an older sister type person to most of the medical students. And like once once they realized she wasn't going to take any guff, she wasn't going to take any other nonsense and she was just here to learn and that was it. They kind of settled down and took her at her word. Her mentor was telling her at one point during her application process, you're just going to have to dress like a man and go to France or something and, you know, go somewhere else and find medical school. She was like, no, that's not the point. The point is to be a woman going to medical school. This is, you know, I don't want to have to pretend to be a man that's silly that's that's totally besides she you know wouldn't even be worth it to her i'm so impressed by all that she went through and that she kept going and kept going like through their whole lives these women they're constantly faced with sexism with people telling them no with with hearing no over and over and over again sometimes their families are disowning them they don't have the support maybe they don't have that mentor in their life to get them to you know keep going but they did they kept going and that's why i was really drawn to these women Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So in your estimation, is a lot of the sort of chutzpah that is behind their desire to pursue something that had been traditionally barred from reach, does it have a lot to do with who their parents were? Like a lot to do with how they were raised? They received a high quality education and believed in their own intellectual capabilities. Because as again, as you know, a lot of women were denied education during this time. If you learn how to read and do basic sums enough to like buy something at the market and teach your kids how to add, that was enough for many people. And then of course there were poverty issues and things, all kinds of reasons why women could not access an education. But 
do you see commonalities between these women of like, they all came from upper class families, their families all paid for high quality education. What, if any, commonalities do they have? For Elizabeth Blackwell, her father was wealthy at one point. I think when they were living in England, they were doing okay. But as soon as they moved to America, he just never really regained his business. And then he died pretty soon after that. So honestly, Elizabeth Blackwell, she was not accustomed to money. They had to work like they had to be like having their house as a boarding house for people. All the sisters had to go off and find something to do to support the family. So this was a necessity and she couldn't afford to go to medical school right away. She like asked people to borrow money if she could get loans from people and she she just couldn't get the money together. So she had to go off and be a school teacher in the South for several years just to, to earn enough money before she could even think about applying to medical school. So her story was a little bit different. Now, the two women in the UK, Lizzie and Sophia, they are definitely from money. Sophia is kind of a snobby brat, if we're honest. Like, I love her. She's my favorite. But <laughs> she was definitely one who would, like, throw a fit if her dad said no and he would finally relent. But yes, there, there is that element of, well, her dad is holding the purse strings, so she's going to use what she's got to, to get what she wants, right? Is there is it wrong for her <laughs> to use her feminine, uh, you know, <laughs> skills <laughs> to kind of manipulate and get an education if the end result is an education? Can I really blame her for that? It's not like she was, you know, doing something that was solely for herself. She wanted to better the world for other people as well. But yes, Lizzie, their family was well-to-do, and it was rather shocking for her to want to go and have a job. When you have a rich family, it's especially, no, because like if, if you're poor, you, you know, you go, you're a domestic servant, you work in a factory, these types of things, you, you would expect to have a working class job. But these more wealthy women that it was their mothers, their fathers were, you know, disowned them. But I think as much as money can play a role, their private practices were definitely bolstered. Lizzie's especially, that her family would send her baskets full of food from their, their big farm and, you know, these types of things. Whereas Elizabeth Blackwell, when she first had a private practice, she was like, had to save her coals, ration out her food and her fuel because she was really lacking on the funds. So the fact that they then went on and, and worked together uh, was kind of interesting to me. I can see what you're saying, especially in Britain, which has a more structured class system than early America. It would have been seen as a lower class thing to do, to get a job. Like, you mean to tell me you're going to get a job? This idea of like, that's beneath you. It's beneath you to have a job. Yes, it's going to ruin your chances of finding, you know, getting someone to become a partner for you. You're going to, you're never going to marry someone. They're not going to look twice at you. What are you doing to your future? Basically, was the was what they were saying. Because marrying well, there's nothing to aspire to beyond marrying well. <laughs> right? I mean, like, that was obviously, that was the case for women for most of history, is that was the ultimate aspiration was like, oh, she got a good husband. And by good, we mean rich. <laughs> we have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house, and then when people come over, they're like, um, your house smells weird. There's a solution for that, and it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant. It is taking care of the smell at the source by using 
Lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet. It is a whole body deodorant. It is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code SHARON. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes, you can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible, and then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon masterclass.com slash Sharon. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. I would love to hear more about what medical education was like during this Victorian era? What was it like for these women to actually attend medical school? 
That was one of the more shocking things that I learned is that medical school during this era, it was only a few months. What? It was shockingly a uh, few months? In- insufficient. Yes. Yeah. I mean, hopefully you would go on to like, you know, work alongside a- someone after that, you know, work in a hospital and learn some more. You could become a teacher in a few months and you're not actually operating on anyone. A lot of male doctors would graduate without having ever attended an actual birth. And so they would go out into a birthing woman's house and this would be the first time for both of them. And they, you know, the woman's like, oh my gosh, (laughs) what? But but yes, oh, I want that doctor instead of this midwife who's delivered 500 babies, you know, like this idea that the doctor would know better, but like, no, it's actually the doctor's first time. Yep. Yeah. They had no (laughs) idea what they were doing. I'm sure it was traumatizing for everyone involved. I cannot imagine So in the U.S., yeah, there were separate schools. They would hopefully get some hands-on experience of some kind before they graduated, but it was very short. And then luckily, all the women that I profiled, they went to hospitals and like, you know, did practice before they went and (laughs) had their own private practices. But uh, in the U.K., almost all medical schools were attached to a hospital. So they could learn directly from the cases that would come into the hospital. So that was easier. But it was harder to get an education that way for the women because Lizzie, what she tried to do was earn a degree by being a nurse first. So she went in and worked as a trainee nurse. And then she would be like, oh, hey, can I take this class that they're having over here? And they're like, okay, sure, fine. And then she'd be like, well, what about that class? Can I take that class too? And then eventually the hospitals realized what she was trying to do and be like, no, no, you can't be a regular student. That's not going to happen. And they would kick her out. So she had to like hop from hospital to hospital, getting what classes she could finish. And so she could kind of cobble together her degree, but they did not want her around. She was constantly being smarter, approving that she was smarter than all the other male students, you know, answering questions that they didn't know how to answer. She would be submitting cases to medical journals and they get angry because that's for them to be doing. She's just this practice nurse coming in here and showing them up and they couldn't be having that. So it was a mixture of the students, you know, complaining uh, about her and the professors being like, yeah, no, we can't have women students in here. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid we let girl jeans in this room. That is disturbing. <sighs> Olivia's laughing at my how aghast, how aghast I am that it took a couple of months. How did you even get into medical school though, Olivia? There wasn't like a MCAT test. How did, how would you prove you could do it? That's the thing. Like there was no application. Like most, if you were a man that wanted to do this, you just went to school. They just said, okay. But if you're a woman, oh no, absolutely not. You're, we're going to need to see these references. What are, you know, I think in Europe it was, it was a little stricter, of course, but in the U.S., yeah, it was, hey, you want to go to school? Sure. Medicine was not revered then as it was now. So it was kind of like, oh, you're too stupid to be a lawyer. I guess you can go become the doctor of the family. Right. Yes. Yes. I think people forget that, that medicine has not always been a like, oh, I hope my kids are doctors, like the tippy top of socially acceptable jobs. It used to be if you were a minister- that was the like the tip top of the social food chain, the town minister. Maybe there'd be one person in the Presbyterian church and somebody in the Methodist church, you know, like they were the people that were respected. And doctors, in many ways, for a period of time, were almost viewed as kind of like 
snake oil salesmen, charlatan type people of like, they're going to try to take your money and sell you some fraudulent herbs. You know, like it wasn't this profession where we're like, well, the doctor said it, so I'm going to do it like it is today. They were definitely pretty rough around the edges, especially when we're talking about these earlier eras from when Elizabeth Blackwell is first doing this in like the 1840s and 50s. What these women were walking into was not like, you know, a serene group of people staring at a chalkboard, right? These were kind of wild guys who were, you know, bundled off to medical school because they had to do something. So these women are getting yelled at and they're getting, you know, catcalled and called horrible things just because these are some ruffians and what they did was they kind of used that to say you expect these men to be the a medical doctor for your kid like we have to be here you need us because you don't want these guys anywhere near your family right to what extent if any did elizabeth blackwell's quaker faith play in her desire to become a physician or her views on what women were capable of Uh, I think it really shaped her sort of vision of equality. She never saw herself as anything but equal to her brothers and sisters. She was raised to believe that she was equal. So why was society telling her otherwise? I mean, she's such an interesting character. She didn't like that she had to buy a fancy dress to go do a speech or something. You know, she would get her sister to come and say, hey, go shopping with her. And like, I have to, I can't look like this. Like she knew she had to look better, but she didn't really care, you know. They didn't like spending money on themselves, whereas, you know, Lizzie likes being pretty. Lizzie likes the finer things. She likes having velvet dresses and looking nice. And she likes proving that she is a feminine person in addition to being a physician, because that was a big thing, you know, lobbed at women who wanted doctors. Oh, that you must be a man. There must be something wrong with you or rejecting your gender by wanting to do this gross profession. What do you, you know, so... She didn't want to play into that. Lizzie wanted to show that she could be this dainty woman in addition to getting her hands dirty and being a surgeon and finding, you know, huge masses and pulling them out of people and sending them off to museums and things, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot going on for all of them. And that I really liked investigating the kind of dual natures uh, of these women. The women's education during this time, when you think about like the formation of the seven sisters colleges, and as we start getting into like the turn of the century, where gaining a college education becomes something that smart, wealthy girls are ought to do. What they did with it was a different story, but they're started to become a place for women to get a higher education. Certainly not at Harvard. We wouldn't want to mix anybody together. We wouldn't want men and women to trade ideas. That would be terrible, Olivia. So much of the future success of women is built on the shoulders of people like these women who were willing to do it first, who were willing to defy the odds, women who were willing to be discriminated against, women who were willing to have people laugh at them, women who were willing to be the subject of gossip and people not understanding their motivations, who were willing to set that aside so that future generations would have the opportunities that were initially denied to them. So I would love to hear from you, in what ways do you think the women that you profile in your book and women like them changed medicine? What do you see as sort of their biggest contributions? So what's fascinating to me was that because 
the US and the UK were so sexist about how far they could go in their educations. So many women went to Switzerland, they went to France, they went to Germany, they went to mainland Europe. And that is where medicine was actually innovating. Like that's where the discoveries are being made. That's where science is really changing the nature of medicine as we know it. So these women were exposed to so many incredible medical innovations because they were discriminated against. They bring those back to the U.S. and to the U.K. And so they're so much more highly educated than their peers. And that's what I thought was really interesting was that women doctors were among the first to do like social services type things. They pioneered like preventative medicine and prenatal medicine, the idea of antiseptic surgeries and better C-sections, all these things they're bringing back from their education and their training in Europe to America. And women are, are reaping the rewards, right? They're also doing actual scientific research. So they get their degree and they see that men are looking in the wrong areas to see why women are ill, to see what's causing women's illness. And so they're actually doing their own research into it and saying, okay, this is what's really causing women's illness. And so that's totally changing the course of women's medicine. Yeah, totally. And you know, that old saying of if you educate a woman, you educate a family. And so when these women were pioneering things like preventative medicine and like the community education aspect and the prenatal care aspect, that has had ripple effects in history that you can't even measure. There's not even a way to quantify the number of people that were impacted by the types of preventative care and education that they were able to put out into the community, which then women shared with their children and their children and their children and their children throughout history. It's hard to quantify those things because it's preventing, right? So we don't know how much it's, it's but it really is. It's making a difference. The way that they're Many of these women were being community educators at the eventual women's hospital. And then Elizabeth Blackwell, from her hospital, she created her own women's medical school. So she's making sure that women don't have to go through what she went through. That's the crux of the book is that these women didn't just do it for themselves. It wasn't just for the accolades and for the fame and to say, oh, look at me, look what I did. It was, you know what? I had a horrible time. I'm going to make sure no other woman has to go through that. And we're going to set up some women's medical schools. They wanted to go to school with the men, right? That's where all the, the money was. That's where all the good teachers were. That's where all the, you know, laboratories that were full of stuff were. But as they painfully realized, that wasn't going to happen. They weren't ready for that yet. So let's let's make schools where women can go and not get produce and mud thrown at them for just going to class. Let's not get assaulted every time we go to a, a group lecture. So that was a huge, huge boon for medical schools, for medical education, for women, for all the things. The fact that women were allowed to become doctors because of these women's medical schools. Like we have so many more community doctors in the U.S. that understood women and family problems and could then go into their communities, especially black women, Jewish women. You know, these were the women that were coming to these women's medical schools and then going back into their own communities and really improving the quality of life and the medical care that these communities were getting. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, 
you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try one skin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code SHARON. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com What was it like to research this book? We were talking before we started recording of like, you better love the subject of your book because you're going to spend three years writing it, editing it, talking about it afterwards. You better love it. So obviously you have to love it. But what is involved in actually researching people from multiple countries at a time when women's stories were not often carefully preserved the way men's were? So Elizabeth and Lizzie, there was a lot of good archival research for them. I went to archives in New York, in London, and Edinburgh. So I had personal letters. There's repositories in New York of all Elizabeth Blackwell's letters that she wrote. So it was electrifying for me to go in and hold something that she had actually held and written. And it was incredible. 
great feeling. It really connected me to them and made me want to do my best for their stories and to really share their lives. But the biggest issue was Sophia. Sophia asked that after her death, that all her papers be destroyed. This is a really common thing for women, especially if you maybe had more of a public life and you didn't want your private stuff aired out uh, after your death. So she really wanted to control the narrative. Luckily for her, she published a lot. She wrote a lot of essays. She wrote scientific papers. Her partner was a writer. So her partner, after Sophia died, her partner took all the papers, wrote a biography of Sophia, and then destroyed the papers. So we don't have all of her papers, clearly, but there are snippets pasted into this little biography of her. So they were public figures enough that there was a lot to dig through. Lizzie's daughter wrote her biography. Elizabeth's sisters wrote a biography, like a magazine article about her while she was alive. Elizabeth Blackwell also wrote a lot about her experience too in a little booklet. So they did a great job for me. You know, they set the stage for me to kind of pick the pieces up. But I really loved that this wasn't a straight biography. It's not a straight history and it's not straight science. But it's pulling together, you might have heard of this person, you might have heard of all three of them, but you don't know how they work together and how their stories intertwined and how they had to figure out how to work together in order to achieve this goal to have a medical school for women in London so that all other women could benefit from that. Mm. I love that. I love thinking about generations of women that have come before me and how they did the work on my behalf in many ways. Obviously, I'm not a physician, but I can think of that in a huge variety of ways, women's suffrage and things of that nature where they did the work so we don't have to. And we are still to this day benefiting from the doors they opened. And it makes me smile to think about like, if there's a way for them to look down on what they helped create, like, I feel like that is, it's kind of gratifying to think about, like, look at the doors that my courage opened and the ripples that my courage have had throughout time and history. I love that. I had a little picture of the three of them. It's not a photo of them all together, but it's like three portraits that appeared in an ad for a fundraiser for the hospital that they worked on. But I had it taped up on my wall the whole time I was writing. And, you know, I I just want to do them justice. I'm a journalist. I'm not a historian. I'm not, you know, I'm not a traditional like a novelist or anything. I want to tell a balanced and honest story. But as I got to know these women, I was like, oh, but I don't want to say anything bad about that. You know, it's really kind of testing my ability as a journalist to be like, I'm going to tell the straight story and I'm going to not candy coat anything. I'm not going to whitewash anybody. But you know, I really came to love these women for what they were. And I didn't want to maybe talk about some, you know, some of the other things, but I I did my best to try and like paint them as full people too. Like I didn't want to feel like a lot of biographies sanitize and leave out really important, uh, bad things. So I tried my best. The first thing I did when I sat down, I was like, okay, I can't write about anyone that condoned slavery. Like that's the number one thing. We're not going to praise or celebrate anyone that that did that. So that's the first bar that they (laughs) got to jump over. But still, it was it was hard once I got to know them. I can imagine that. I know exactly what you're talking about, where you become emotionally attached to a historic figure. And you're like, I need to be honest, but I kind of don't want to be. <laughs> and you can see how people of the past who had emotional connections to characters, the instinct is to lionize them and to make them seem 
so wonderful because of what they were able to accomplish. You don't want to do anything to diminish their accomplishments. So I, I understand the instinct and I also admire you for pushing through that of like, they have to be real people. We have to tell the truth, but it doesn't have to be in a gotcha expose manner. There's a way to tell the truth and still admire them for their contributions. I love that. Exactly. Okay. Wrapping things up. What do you hope that the reader takes away from this book when they close the last page? What would be your wish for them being like, oh, I got X out of this, or I just loved Y. What would be your hope for the reader? I hope that they understand just how difficult it was. Like, I hope that they go into it thinking that it was much easier than it was. And I want them to know just how not how much they suffered necessarily, but just how hard this was and how much guts it took for these people to keep going and kind of realize that we're still dealing with sexism in medicine. You know, like, I, I hope this makes people want to speak out and to continue the fight, because I do think that in some ways, these women would kind of be embarrassed by where we are right now. Yes, there's a lot of medical students that are women now. But if you go to like the leadership positions in medical institutions, are there as many women? Women are quitting because of the sexism from peers, from colleagues, from patients. Women are still complaining as patients. They're still complaining about the treatment they're getting for their illnesses or about being told that it's all on their head, right? We're still faced with a lot of the problems that I touch on in this book. So I hope that people will use that being infuriated on these women's behalf and to continue with that. Mm. So good. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for being here. I loved reading your book and I loved chatting with you today. I appreciate your time, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fantastic. You can buy Olivia Campbell's New York Times bestselling book, Women in White Coats, wherever you prefer to buy books. I always have to get my plug for bookshop.org in there, which supports independent bookstores. You can also visit ocampbellwriter.com. That's Olivia Campbell's website, ocampbellwriter.com. Sign up for her monthly newsletter that profiles women in science and buy a copy of her book. This show is researched and hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. Our executive producer is Heather Jackson. Our audio producer is Jenny Snyder. And if you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform? That helps us so much And we always love to see your shares and tags on social media. We'll see you again soon.